You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens with you. Today with uh, someone who is very familiar to all of you who read Catholic Exchange. This is uh, Michelle Cronister who is with us today. She's a blogger, a mother, someone who writes quite a bit on the saints for us at Catholic Exchange. Many of you might remember her from her Edith Stein article. And that one, I think something around 9,000 of you read that one. So very popular here at Catholic Exchange. We're glad to have her. Michelle, welcome to the Catholic Exchange podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's our pleasure. So to begin, Michelle, can you tell us, I know I gave you somewhat of an introduction, but can you tell us a little bit about you? And specifically, I know you blog at My Domestic Monastery. And tell us about that. Sure. Um, So my name is Michelle, and I am married and have two small children, and my husband also is a theologian, so we we, we keep it real in the family, our poor children. <laughs> um, I have two little girls who are four and two and spend most of my days with them and the rest of the time writing. Um, and my husband also teaches at a seminary, which is often featured in funny stories on my blog. So um, it's a really great opportunity to be a part of the seminary community. It's just increased my love of seminarians and priests and my respect for them. So that's been really great. Um, my blog is My Domestic Monastery, and I've been writing in it for a few years. And the initial inspiration was when I realized having a small child that there was this sort of natural like rhythm to our days. And I remember mm-hmm. before I got married, when I was still kind of discerning my vocation, I remember reading like this monastic schedule at some point, and they were describing getting up in the middle of the night, waking up at like five in the morning, and I just <laughs> I can never I can never do this. And then I had children, and it's pretty much the same sort of lifestyle um, without the silence, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so um so yeah so inspired by that sort of rhythm of the work, pray, play, sleep, and eat as well. Um, I started my domestic monastery, so I've just been writing for the last few years my reflections on raising kids in the faith. Um, I actually have a book that I've co-written with another blogger, Amy Garrow, on um, raising infants and toddlers in the faith. It's called Faith Beginnings through Lagoria Publications, and that's just kind of a reflection on how you can start teaching even the littlest children to grow in their faith. And that's kind of my passion is working with families to see that you can raise even very, very small children in the faith and teach them a lot. And a lot of my inspiration for that has been through my work with people with disabilities and seeing how that's another group that a lot of people just don't really give a lot of serious consideration to in terms of their own personal faith development. Um, And so realizing the importance of helping those individuals grow in their faith and then also realizing that, you know, small children are another group that's often not taken as seriously as they should be. So just trying to encourage parents to, Start young and talk to them often about God's love for them. Uh, to go back a little bit, your very first article with us at Catholic Exchange was a great piece called Sainthood Isn't for the Strong, and you talked about working with people. I believe that was uh, you were speaking about a gentleman who had uh, developmental disabilities, mm-hmm. if I'm yeah. remembering. Mm-hmm. And uh, what got you started in that work? That's uh, one, as you mentioned, it's not one that many people find themselves into, especially as a ministry of sorts. Yeah, um, you know, I think it was totally the work of God that I got involved in it because it wasn't something mm-hmm. I actually was remembering at some point, I think in high school, I volunteered for a day with like Special Olympics in the area I lived in. And yes. I remember walking away from it and saying, oh, I can never, I can never do this. Like, I think that these kids are wonderful, but I just don't think I'm, I don't think I'm good enough and patient enough to be able to work with them. And, um, and lo and behold, when I was in college, I wanted to do this summer service project, kind of had 
not a total random as- assignment, but it was directed towards this one site, and it just so happened to be a camp for people with disabilities um, run by a Catholic priest, so there was that faith component as well. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely fell in love with the work that summer. And I think what really hooked me into looking at it from a ministerial standpoint was when I met this one woman who um, had a developmental disability, had an intellectual disability, actually. And she was talking to me and she said, my mother told me that she thinks I would be a good nun. I would really like to be a nun. And so the conversation I had with her kind of stuck with me because she's just so filled with joy and love of God. And I thought, you know, she'd be a really great nun. And then as I investigated, I realized, though, that there really aren't religious orders for people with developmental disabilities. There might be, like, one in France, I think. But for the most part, it's not like there's – it's not something that most people would be welcome into. Um, And that sort of lit a fire under me to really, like, investigate and advocate for people with disabilities because I saw what a gift they were, not just in terms of the ministry that we were doing to them, but also um, the ways that they were ministering to us and the ways that they were witnessing to God, to us. Um, So I continued doing ministry in that area for the following two summers. And then um, my graduate work was through Notre Dame, the ECHO program, which is part of the Institute for Church Life and had the opportunity opportunity to work with um, people with disabilities in my parish assignment and develop a curriculum for them and that sort of thing. And ended up writing a book on that after I graduated called Handbook for Adaptive Catechesis. And through that, a number of introductions and whatnot led me to working with the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. And so now I'm actually a co-chair of their Council on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. So it's just been a long journey, but it's definitely been something where God just keeps nudging me along and I have a real heart for the ministry. Uh, That is good. Uh, I find it funny you mentioned that you your first experience with the Special Olympics was, oh, I could never do this kind of work, which was exactly mine. And I thought the people who did it must have some kind of patience that I didn't possess. Okay. But as I learned more and more, it's like, no, actually, they just did it. Right. And that's yeah. almost what sainthood requires you to do is just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, in the midst of all this, I discovered the writings of Henry Nowen. And mm. he ended his life in a large community and had gone through a lot of like, um, I think like mental health issues and that sort of thing. And had kind of struggled with that emotionally himself and with feeling down about that. And then he encountered these individuals who had very visible weaknesses. And so he just writes a lot about the fact that they taught him that um, we should be conscious of our own weaknesses and that God can work through those weaknesses. And I just thought that that was really powerful. Um, and of course, Paul writes about that in his second letter to the Corinthians when he has this whole... I think it's the 12th chapter he talks about this like thorn in his side and how he begs God to remove it. And God instead responds by telling him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness, um, which Mm -hmm. is kind of what the article is about. And I just think that that's so beautiful and such an important reminder that it's not about our own, like, you know, just toughening our way to heaven or whatever, but it's really God working through us and through our weakness. And that's, of course, the image of the cross as well. Very good. And to go back, you mentioned that you had actually published a book already on this subject? I did, yeah. That was actually my first book was Handbook for Adaptive Catechesis. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about that? I actually didn't know about this book. (laughs) Um, So Handbook for Adaptive Catechesis was the first book I published. It's through Ligori Publications. I think it came out in 2012. Um, It's kind of a blur because these books were in the midst of having children and whatnot. Um, Understandable. (laughs) We're the book, but we're the child, you know, interchangeably. (laughs) Um, so Handbook for Adaptive Catechesis was kind of like an um, an offshoot of the senior thesis I wrote when I was an undergraduate at Notre Dame, um, just kind of writing the basics of what you would need to know when going into ministry 
um, with people with special needs. Because a lot of people who are working within a parish, their background is in ministry or in theology, not in special education. And most of these people are very busy people who don't have time to go out and then get a degree in special education. So the idea was just to give them kind of a basic synopsis of the things that they should know and kind of what sort of perspective they should do their ministry from, um, which is very much the idea of looking at those they're working with with dignity and seeing that these individuals have something to contribute to the church, that these individuals have a vocation and yes. that they have something to contribute to the church. It's not just a case of us serving them, that sort of thing. Um so, yeah, it's been a great book that's given me a lot of opportunities to talk with different people around the country and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, it's been really great. Okay, on that subject, uh, I think a lot of people, if they thought about it, would be surprised when they hear that folks with these developmental disabilities and other disabilities actually have a vocation and something to add to the church. And it shouldn't shock us, but it, I think it would shock some of us. But can you tell us a little bit about your discovery of that and what what exactly do you see as the vocation in this case? Yeah, um, that's really great. I'm actually working on another manuscript for a book on this topic. All right. So I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, so I think there are two different ways to think of vocation. And one is thinking of what our specific vocation is, you know, whether or not we're called to be married or single or join religious life or priesthood, that sort of thing. Um, but then there's the much bigger, broader idea of vocation, and that is that all of us are called to be saints by the nature of our baptism. And this is a vocation that all of us share, regardless of what our specific vocation is. And I think that it's important to keep in mind that those with disabilities are called to this very big, broad vocation, regardless of what other vocation they may have. They're called to be saints, and they have a lot to contribute to the church through that calling. And I think of um, saints who have had very great impact without leaving their place of origin, such as St. Therese of Lisieux, who didn't have a, um, a disability, obviously. But she was, you know, she lived a very, very sheltered life in one tiny part of France. And then she went to a Carmelite monastery that was cloistered and, you know, lived a very sheltered life. But now she's the patron saint of missionaries, you know, because of the way that God worked through her. Um, And so I think it's important to keep in mind that when we look at people with disabilities, it's not as much about their limitations, but it's about the way that God works through um, who they are as people and, um, through the grace of their baptism and just keeping in mind that we have this beautiful history in the church of God working through those who the rest of the world thinks is little are little and weak and realizing that those are the people that God is choosing over and over again. Such so as like the Blessed Mother, who's someone who most people wouldn't have thought would be chosen to be the mother of God. And yet um, she's chosen to be the queen of all saints, this poor, humble girl from this unknown town in Israel, you know, um, And so that's kind of what I think is the case here where we need to keep in mind that we can't limit how God works to how we work in this world, but instead that we should be open to how God works in all of our lives to become saints and to be saints that the church really needs. Uh, You mentioned uh, going back through St. Therese and also the vocations. I'm just curious to also to learn a little more about this. In America, we often try to ignore the suffering or try to pretend it's not there but what do you think is the vocation of seeing this and being able to be connected with people who are having disabilities and not necessarily an easier time that's a really great question i know something that i've talked with other people about is um this kind of striking this balance because you don't want to focus so much on like someone's weakness 
in light of how the society, because our society just has this very strange view of what weakness is and what illness is and that sort of thing. And so because Mm -hmm. our society has that viewpoint, if you say the word like, oh, so-and-so has a weakness, our society would view it one way, our Catholic theology would view it some way very different, you know, because of the cross itself. Um, So it's a very fine balance keeping that in mind. But keeping in mind that we're talking about it more from a theological perspective, um, I think that it's important to remember that everybody has some degree of suffering in their lives. It's just like the nature of living in this fallen world. Of course. But what the cross teaches us is that um, this suffering can be redeemed. It doesn't have to be this terrible thing because Christ suffered. And through his ultimate suffering, we can unite all our sufferings to his and it can become a part of the work of sanctifying the world and part of his work of redemption. Um, So I think that that's probably a really great a really great piece in terms of looking at those with disabilities is that they remind us, um, I think, that suffering is a part of the world and that all of us have suffering and remind us that we too have suffering, even if we try to ignore ours and hide ours, because many of them can't hide theirs. But at the same time, too, I think um, the joy with which a lot of them embrace the challenges in their life um, is just so beautiful. I feel like most of the people that I met, I mean, obviously people with disabilities are like any other people and there are people who are like very cheerful and people who are in terrible moods all the time, just like the rest of us. Um, but I feel like a lot of the people I've met are people who don't feel bad for themselves and, you know, don't feel like, you know, God has cursed me and punished me. But instead, they really try to carry whatever challenges God's given them with grace and with love. And I feel like some of the people I've encountered who have loved God most deeply have been people who are facing some really, really difficult challenges, but they still have this love and yearning for God. And it's a reminder for me that when I face challenges, um, I'm called to do the same, you know, to see that this is a part of my life in this fallen world, but nothing can separate us from that love of Christ, you know, and I just think that's a, it's a beautiful witness that they have to that. Now to switch gears to go to the pleasant life of your domestic monastery. <laughs> I'm curious to know, I think you've written about it several times now, but you mentioned uh, earlier in the interview that there's a rhythm. As a mother, what do you? is there a rhythm also that you think that most of us are into, and do you find that reflected all in the liturgical year? And this is a question I know the answer to, but I'm asking anyways. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> the short answer. Um, I think actually, yes, in the liturgical year, but a rhythm that I see myself reminded of again and again is in the Liturgy of the Hours, actually, which is a prayer that I've loved for a long time and have recently gone back into saying again, um, I was reading some of the little oratory, which is put out by um, Sophia Institute Press, a little plug there. Um, you can buy it. <laughs> yeah, you can buy it. It's well worth your money. Um, but in there, Lila Lawler talks about the the rhythm to the liturgy of the hours and how that rhythm can work into our lives as a family. And so I recently rediscovered it through her reminder of looking at it again. Um, and I think that there's a really, really close parallel between the liturgy of the hours and family life. I just love that things like when you pray Compline night prayer at the end of the day, it's very short. <laughs> and it's kind of like by the time you get to the end of the day as a family, you're tired and you're done. And I love that the liturgy of the hours kind of just acknowledges like, we're done. <laughs> Say a quick prayer and go to bed. You know, um, I love that the times for the prayers are very reflective of times in your day. So um, like morning prayer is at like I think often said at 6 a.m. And I'm usually up at 6 a.m. with two small children um, or have been woken up once or twice already at that point or whatever. So it's 
it's a real comfort to me in my vocation to know that there are people praying these prayers at other parts in the world and people who are praying these prayers who don't have to be up at six in the morning because they don't have somebody who's screaming for them in the next room, you know. Um, and I think, too, like, especially, as I mentioned, my, my husband's an adjunct professor at uh, the seminary in our diocese. And I find such encouragement seeing these young men who I know are waking up very early in the morning to say their prayers and to go to Mass and to do adoration. Um, and to know that they've chosen a lifestyle where they're not going to have a child waking them up at 6 in the morning. But to know that they're they're doing this sort of in solidarity. They're praying for me even when I can't pray. Um, and that's what I love, I think, about the Liturgy of the Hours and also the church here. Is it's this journey that we walk together um, despite the difference in maybe our vocations and the specific ways that God's calling us in our lives, it's a way that we can all journey together as a church. And I think one of the ways I always see this most beautifully is if I'm traveling. We live far away from family now, so we're traveling a lot more than we used to. And I think it's beautiful when you go to different churches and you always hear the same readings and you see them you know, decorated for the same liturgical season that you are in your parish back home. And just this idea that the church is universal and we're all walking this journey together. And that we can see that through the readings in the lectionary and the prayers we say um, in the divine office and all that is just really beautiful. Some blog article that came about that I also wanted to ask you about because I think it got some great attention. And this subject always gets great attention when we talk about a Catholic exchange. You wrote one uh, on the 13th of August that you don't use church nurseries. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're one of those mothers who brings their kids into the church, yeah, and yeah. God love you for doing that as a single man who converted into adulthood. One of the first <laughs> things I loved about seeing being Catholic was seeing children. <laughs> like uh, The one thing I compared it to, uh, as I told people, it was like when you – if anyone's ever seen the movie Children of Men, like when you suddenly hear a child crying, but you hadn't heard that noise before, it's like, oh, wow, they exist. <laughs> so God love you for doing that. But I do want to ask, why don't you use church nurseries? And I know you answered this in your vlog, but I'm just curious to know. Right. Um, well, I will say I have another post where I talk about why I do use cry rooms. <laughs> and I feel like cry rooms are kind of the happy medium. Um, my firstborn, we... We would occasionally use a cry room, but my second born had really bad colic when she was little and would just scream Aww. straight through mass. So I really did appreciate having a cry room, but I still thought it was important for her and for me to be there. Um, so recently, I kind of talk about this in the post, but recently, maybe like last year or something like that, we visited with friends who are not Catholic and visited their church and their church had this whole complicated system for childcare and like kids church going on during the adult church. But then when we went to the church service and I saw what the church service consisted of, and it wasn't the first time I'd been to a non-Catholic church service, but it was the first time I'd taken my children to it and saw that it basically, you know, there was a message being given, there was scripture being read, but that was kind of the heart of it. And there wasn't anything that couldn't have been replaced by going to a children's church. But what's mm -hmm. so different about the mass is it's not just about teaching them about their faith. It's not just about them hearing the scriptures or getting a good message or hearing good music, but it's about encountering the living God and encountering him through the Eucharist and while joining the communion of saints um, at the heavenly liturgy, because that's our foretaste of the heavenly liturgy. And so I think what's so beautiful and so important about the mass is that it's not just about entertaining us and it's not just about what we can get out of it, but it's about 
worshiping God and about encountering him in this very real way. And I've seen with both my daughters, my youngest now just turned two and my oldest is almost five. And both of them have a very deep love for Jesus in the Eucharist just from being there. Um, my youngest is really funny. They, they both went through this stage, but she's in it pretty hardcore where whenever we pass a church or a building that even vaguely resembles a church, she likes to blow a kiss and say, hi, G. And it's just like adorable. Um, <laughs> but it's like this understanding that Jesus is present there, you know, and actually it's really funny. This is probably because their parents are theology, theologians, whatever. Um, yes. But when we pass a church that's not a Catholic church, my oldest will correct her and say, oh, no, he's just spiritually present there, but the Eucharist isn't there. And I'm just like, I hope nobody mishears this at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but still, there's this, this understanding awareness. And we don't sit them down and catechize them during Mass or anything like that. Like, yes. Um, my focus during Mass with them, um, obviously, I want them to behave, but it's more just the general, whenever I take you in public, I want you to know how to behave yourself. And it's less a case of like, oh, this is this is sinful and wrong if you don't behave. I'm not really concerned about it from that perspective. Um, but I want them to be there and to know Christ and to know his love just by being there in his Eucharistic presence. And this is actually a lesson, too, that I learned from working with people with disabilities. There was a young man who I got to prepare for a confirmation in First Communion. And he had a developmental disability, so he was, had a physical disability and an intellectual disability, probably had, like, the understanding, like, mental development of about an 18-month-old. And so, obviously, I couldn't really talk to him about the Eucharist. I mean, I talked to him about it, but I couldn't get, like, any verbal feedback from him. And so, our classes consisted of, you know, I would read to him the story of the Last Supper. I would talk to him about what the Eucharist was. But we went to a chapel with the Eucharist every single time that we were there together. And beforehand, you know, we practiced with like an unconsecrated host because he had some like oral like motor issues and whatnot. Um, and he would always just look so disgusted. So I was really dreading his day of First Communion. But then when he received Jesus in the Eucharist, he didn't look disgusted at all. Like he he looked more filled with joy than I'd ever seen him look in all the time that I had known him. And it was this beautiful, profound moment when I really realized like putting anyone in the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is not about me and what I do. It's about the work that he's capable of doing in their hearts. And so that's kind of something that's carried over to my journey as a mother is knowing that even if they're wiggly, even if they're running all over the place, even if we're in and out of church and they don't hear a word of it, them just being there and being in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist makes a huge difference. And that's something that obviously um, doesn't apply to churches that don't have our beautiful belief in the Eucharist and doesn't have don't have Jesus present in the Eucharist. But because that's what Mass is, it matters having children there, and it matters having babies there, and it matters even if the children and babies are very loud and are crying and screaming. So, yeah. And that goes for the adults if they're being very loud and crying oh, and screaming. Of course. So, yeah. you know, of course. <laughs> I'm often more distracted by the people commenting on the liturgy the whole time behind me than the children, <laughs> <Yep>. so <laughs> to each their own. But that is something uh, you mentioned uh, that your children have already just from observing you, granted, they'll pick up on their theolo your theological tones too, <laughs> but that's so that uh, my family is not particularly religious. I'm the only Roman Catholic that's currently practicing, but even my nephews ask profound questions that at 12 and 13 I would never have thought to ask, but because they're always exposed to, well, granted, they've heard me go off on intellectual rants, as they <laughs> call them, So, but it's just amazing the questions and the ability just from observing and kind of looking at, so it's a... Uh, Powerful lesson for me as a single man that the kids do watch yeah, and they are absolutely. paying attention. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> At Catholic Exchange, I think your the articles you've written the most for us have been and would have been 
the most popular have been a lot about uh, the saints, and you're usually focusing. I mean, it's almost like a theme. I'm as your editor, I notice there's a theme where your co- your first article is called "Sainthood isn't for the strong," and then you're bringing up the saints to show actually, yeah, that's not for the strong. Is there a point when you s- thought that would be a good subject to write, or is that something that slowly developed? You know, I wasn't conscious of that until you said it, but oh, okay. <laughs> it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, from the time I was very small, I always remember having a really deep, profound love of the saints. And a lot of that was due to my parents who had a really deep and profound love of the saints um, and who raised us to be aware of who our patron saints were. So my patron saint is St. Saint Michael the Archangel. So from the time I was like itty bitty, I always like loved St. Michael and like dressed like him for Halloween when I was in kindergarten. You know, it's just one of those kids. I, I think one of the things that I love so, so much about the saints is the fact that they come from all different walks of life. There's no like cookie cutter saint. There's saints who are, you know, like carousing and partying for decades and then, you know, end up turning around and God uses them in this huge profound way. There's saints like St. Therese who were little and sheltered and lived this perfect sort of life. And then God ends up using them in this profound way. And I mean, it's just the idea that there is no one kind of saint. The saints are so different that regardless of what you're going through, there's some saint who can relate to what it is you're going through. And what's beautiful is the fact that, you know, they're fully and completely human. There's nothing divine about the saints. They're human just like we are, and they knew the struggles that we knew, and they want to be our friends. So um, I, I don't remember if I have a post about this or if this is just something I've been mulling about for a while. But I really look at myself as more of like a baby sister to the saints, you know, because they're the ones that are like fully developed in terms of their faith life and are where they need to be. You know, they're in heaven praising and glorifying God. But they look at me and they look at all of us here on earth in the church and they look at us with kind of that loving affection that a much, much older sister looks at a much, much younger sister, a much, much older brother looks at a much, much younger brother. Um, and even see my, my daughters are only about three years apart, so I don't see this as much, but sometimes the little one will just do things that are just so completely ridiculous. But the old one is already old enough to know to laugh at it and to know that there's a difference between naughtiness, you know, and just like struggling along as you're growing. And I kind of look at the saints as that for all of us, you know, that they're these friends for us and these advocates for us who really want us to get to heaven and be with them, but who also understand what it's like to kind of be fumbling your way along and to just not quite get it along the way. So I just have a real profound love of the saints and how they fit into the liturgical year. We're just about out of time, but before we leave, I wanted to to let our listeners know if they want to learn a little bit more about you or your books, where can they find out? All my books are available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way to find all of them in one place. Um, Okay. So um, if you just look up Michelle Chronister on Amazon, they should pop up. Two of them are through Liguori, and one of them is published through Amazon and Kindle. So um, that's probably the easiest way to just locate them all at once. Um, Okay, and we'll put the books in our show notes as well for anyone who's (laughs) listening. They can absolutely go to catholicexchange.com and find them. And what's your web address? It's www.mydomesticmonastery.com. Excellent. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. It's always great to hear from you. I know our listeners will appreciate your insights into all the many subjects we covered in the short half hour. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Michael. It's my pleasure. And to all of you listening, you can go to catholicexchange.com. You'll find Michelle's books listed there in our show notes. You can also read... If you go to CatholicExchange.com and type in her name or look at the podcast, you can read her past articles. Apparently, I'm the one who noticed the theme in her articles, (laughs) but you'll notice it very quickly as well. So God love you all. Have a wonderful week.